Let's jump in. So last year during my sabbatical, um, I just felt led to kind of begin to study about the emotions of God. And I needed to get a, a better understanding of how God feels about me, how he feels about others. And um, I really, I just wanted, I've been seeking to get a better understanding of the heart of God. And, you know, we, we sing songs about the love of God. We sing we love him. He sing, we sing that he loves us. And, but sometimes those truths are just surface. We really haven't gone deep enough into the heart of God and allow him to touch our heart. And so I've been spending a lot of extra time just reading about God's emotions in the Bible, um, other authors and, and books as well, um, the Psalms heavily. I've been in the Psalms a lot. But, um, so today, uh, what I want to talk about is I want to talk about the beauty of the heart of Jesus. And I'm going to be throwing out some, some old guys to you, as I've kind of been doing. So you may go, I don't know who that is, but trust me, they're pretty cool dudes. But um, one guy I want to talk about is Jonathan Edwards. And back in the, the summer of 1740, in Jonathan Edwards, he was an American revivalist and a theologian. And um, Jonathan Edwards, he gave a special message, a special sermon that was just for the kids in his congregation. And that, the, the age group was ranging between 1 and 14 years old. And so I just want you for a moment, just kind of imagine the, this famous theologian. He's sitting Maybe he's in a study in Northampton, Massachusetts, and, and he's trying to figure out, you know, what to say to the kids. It's almost worse trying to talk to children than it is adults sometimes, <laughs> just because you got to get down on their level, you got to bring it to who they are, not because they're terrible listeners, like, but because it's just, it's work. But anyway, he's in his, his, his office, and... He's writing his sermon out, and he writes it in his very neat and very fancy handwriting. And the first page, he wrote simply, to the children, August 1740. Now, what do you think one of the, probably one of the greatest theologians in American history would tell kids in his church? Well, here, here it was. Here's his main message. Children should love the Lord Jesus Christ more than anything else in the world. And he uses a Bible verse, Matthew 10:37 to support his point which he read from the King James and in that it says, "He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me." Now, this sermon that he spoke to these kids, it was short, maybe taking about 15 to 20 minutes to deliver. But in the message, uh, Edwards gave six reasons why children should love Jesus more than anything else. And the first reason was this. There is no love so great, so wonderful as that which is in the heart of Christ. He is one that delights in mercy. He is ready to pity those that are in suffering and sorrowful circumstances. One that delights in the happiness of his creatures 
The love and grace that Christ has manifested does as much exceed all that which is in the world as the sun is brighter than a candle. Parents are often full of kindness towards their children, but that is no kindness like Jesus Christ's. So right from the start of his sermon, uh, Jonathan Edwards, he's urging the kids in his church to prioritize loving Jesus more than anything else in the world. And in his sermon and his other writings as well, Edwards often, he highlights the beauty and the goodness of Jesus' loving heart, which is a different approach than a lot of other theologians of his day. So I want you to look at something else he, he said. He says, There is no love so great and so wonderful as that which is in the heart of Christ. Now, we as humans, we naturally are drawn to beauty. And Jonathan Edwards, he deeply understood this. And he believed that attraction to beauty, it also applies to spiritual things. In fact, Edwards thought that all other forms of beauty are like a, a faint reflection of the spiritual beauty that we can find in Christ. And so throughout his ministry, Edwards tried to captivate people with the beauty of Jesus. Does anybody want to be captivated by the beauty of Jesus? That's exactly what he was doing when he was speaking to those kids in his church in August of 1740. And in his sermon, he says this. He says, everything that is lovely in God is in Christ. And everything that is or can be lovely in any man is in him. For he is man as well as God. And he is the holiest, meekest, most humble, and in every way the most excellent man that ever was. So this language about Christ's meekness and his humility, it's even how Jesus himself described his own heart. Remember in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, it says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So in other words, what makes Christ so uh, beautiful to us, it is his gentle, his tender, it's his humble heart. Now today, um, a lot of churches often talk about the glory of God. We talk about the glory of Christ. We, we sing about it, right? But what is it about God's glory that draws us in, that helps us overcome our sins and, and overcomes us as God shines on us with goodness? Well, Edwards argued that it's not just God's bigness, his immense size or his greatness that pulls us toward him. Instead, it's the beauty of his heart. And Edward said that seeing God's greatness alone actually might overwhelm us. But it's not probably going to change our hearts. What truly is needed is to see God's goodness. And that is what draws us to come near. We've all dealt with religious ideas about God. He's angry all the time. He's just doesn't like us and we're always letting him down 
And he's big God, and he can have all those feelings because they're true. But it's his goodness that he says, oh, I love you, though. My son, my son, my daughter. We are drawn to God because of the beauty that we see in Jesus' heart. When sinners and people going through tough times come to Christ, uh, Jonathan said that they discover someone who is incredibly excellent and lovely. They find someone who not only has unmatched majesty, purity, and brightness, but also combines these qualities with kindness and meekness and love. Jesus is always ready to welcome us, even though we may feel weighed down by our sin. We can be surprised to find that our sins actually make Jesus even more eager to embrace us. Right? It's as if he's ready to, you know, forgive us at any moment, completely. It's weird, I know, but he's like that. You know, and it's like in simpler terms, when we come to Jesus, we're amazed by the beauty of his welcoming and loving heart. This surprise, that's what attracts us to him. Have you ever thought about how truly lovely Jesus' heart is? You know, we might not naturally associate beauty with Christ. We might think of God and Jesus as symbols of truth rather than beauty. However, the reason we value sound teaching and doctrine is to preserve the beauty of God. Just as we use a a high-quality camera lens to capture the beauty in photographs with precision. See, we've got to let Jesus draw us closer through his beauty, through the beauty of his heart. His heart, yes, it can be stern when it's needed, but it is also incredibly open and welcoming to anyone, those who are sorry, those who are repentant for their sins. And it leads us to experience the deep love of God and gives us hope when we feel rejected, when we feel alone. The heart of Jesus is in perfect balance. Because he never overreacts. He also doesn't excuse wrong. But he doesn't lash out in anger either. He's full, his heart is so full of care for those in need. And, and he provides such profound comfort to those of us who suffer. Because his heart is gentle and meek. Say that together. It's gentle and meek. One more time. His heart is gentle and meek. And we need a real revelation that Jesus' heart is not only uh, gentle towards us, but it's also lovely. It's lovely towards us. In other words, we need to take time to ponder and think about his heart so that we can be drawn into it. I know when I spend time in silence and solitude, yeah, my brain wants to go just get started with the day. Wants to, and it's 
trying really hard to get me to come out of silence and solitude, but I just keep turning my thoughts to Jesus. I just keep thinking about his beauty. Jesus, you're my light, you're my shepherd. We have to ponder it. We have to think about it. We need to meditate and put it in our brain, put it in our mind's eye. Think, think, think about it so that we can consider who he truly is, so that we understand what motivates him, what brings him the most joy. And this is why it's so important that we create moments of unhurried silence and solitude in our life so that we can have time to reflect, to think about the radiant character of Jesus repeatedly. Let's say that word, repeatedly. Have you ever wondered when you see older Christians, older saints, whether it's in our church or elsewhere, have you ever wondered how they became such strong believers? Now, of course, some of it's because they've got good doctrine, sound understanding of their faith, they have, they've obeyed, they've got obedience, and their ability to endure suffering without becoming bitter, those are all those, some of those things. But actually, I think one of the deepest reasons is that over time, they have been won over by a gentle Savior in their hearts. Amen. Any of my older saints say amen to that? Amen. I didn't say old. I just said older. Settle down, Charlene. I'm there now. I'm 51. Dang right. I'm young and free. A little studly, too. Just ask my wife. She'll tell you all about it. But I think because they've been won over. Maybe it's been the years they've experienced the surprising love of Christ who draws near when they sin instead of a God that pushes them away. They haven't just known about the love of Jesus. They've actually felt it. And let's not forget about the children even in our lives, right? Jonathan Edwards told the kids he knew that there is no love so great and so wonderful as that which is in the heart of Christ. So how, how can we, in our own way and time, convey this same message to our children? Like, what do the children that we meet in the hallways of our church, what do they really, really need deep down? Well, of course, they need friends. Yes, they need encouragement. They need help with schooling, nutritious meals. Can't live on Doritos. I tried. That's why I'm on some other supplements now that I'm 15. But could the most essential need, the thing that actually will keep them going and uplift them when all those maybe other needs are unmet, could it be 
that their deepest need is a sense of how much Jesus cares for them. Do our children know he genuinely cares about them? I was reading an article about kids leaving church when they get older and kids that are even raised. And one of the, they interviewed a bunch of these young adults and, and one, of the, one of the ways that they viewed God, Christianity, was it was like something you put on and take off, like a jacket. Instead of, it's a relationship with someone who I know loves me deeply. So as parents to our own kids, what is our main role? Again, there's probably countless valid answers to that question. But at the core, at the core, our job is to demonstrate to our children that even our most profound love for them, even my love as a dad, and I, oh, I want to love and kiss and hug them, and I do. But that love is just a glimpse of a greater love, specifically the irresistible, unforgettable love found in the tender heart of Christ. And so our aim is for our kids to leave our homes, and they do need to leave. But our aim is for our kids to leave our home, and when they do, they never doubt for the rest of their lives that Christ is always ready to embrace them, no matter their sins and no matter their hardships. Now, I want to look at a verse that shows us, that kind of gives us a picture of the emotions of Jesus. And this verse is from the story about when Jesus came to Mary and Martha after their brother Lazarus had died. And this is in John eleven thirty three, 33. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit. And greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Now, one of the doctrines that I think it, it's hard for us Christians to fully understand is that Jesus permanently retains his humanity. You know, some people think that the Son of God came down from heaven, became a human for a few decades, and then returned to heaven, going back to his original non-human state. However, that belief, it's not in line with Christian doctrine. And it could even be considered somewhat of a heresy. Because the truth is, the Son of God took on human form, and he will never shed that humanity. He became a human and will always be a human. This is the significance of the doctrine of Christ's ascension. He went into heaven with the very human body that he was raised from when he came out of the tomb. He is, of course, divine as well. Always has been 
always will be. But his humanity, once he took it on, it's never going to end. Now, one implication of understanding Christ's permanent humanity is that when we read about the emotions and feelings of Jesus towards sinners and those who suffer in the four Gospels, we are seeing who Jesus is for us today. Because he hasn't reverted to this purely divine state of, of bliss or, I don't know, separate from his human nature. The human nature that Jesus took on, it was genuine, it was complete humanity. In fact, Jesus was the most authentically human person to ever live. Now, there's some ancient heresies out there. Eutychianism and monophysitism. Yeah. Both those heresies... They saw Jesus as kind of a hybrid between the divine and the human. It was kind of like, you know, blue and red make purple. And that Jesus was kind of somewhere in between God and man. Now, these heresies, they were dealt with about 451 A.D. And out of that, when they were dealing with those, they came up with this uh, creed, the Chalcedonian creed and it resulted from that council and it described Jesus as truly God and truly man rather than a mixture of both. Now whatever it means to be human and to be human without sin, Jesus embodied it. And emotions, everyone say emotions. Emotions are a fundamental aspect of being human. Our emotions have been affected by sin, just as every part of humanity has. However, everyone say, however. however. Emotions themselves are not a consequence of sin. In fact, Jesus experienced the entire range of emotions that we do as mentioned here in Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 15 in fact John Calvin the way he put it he said the son of God having clothed himself with our flesh of his own accord clothed himself also with human feelings so that he did not differ at all from his brethren brethren sin only accepted now, let me introduce another old guy to you. His name is Benjamin Warfield. And he was known as the affectionate theologian. And he taught at Princeton. He lived from 1851 to 1921. And he wrote a famous essay back in 1912. And it was titled, The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And in this essay, he examines what the Gospels reveal about the inner feelings and emotions of Jesus which Warfield re referred to as uh, his emotional life. Now, it's important to understand that what Warfield, when he uses that term emotional, he's not uh, implying like being overly emotional or unstable or I'm, you know, uh, I'm overwhelmed, driven by feelings in any kind of unhealthy way. It's not what he's talking about. Instead, he's, he's simply observing and understanding what Jesus 
felt. And as he explores Christ's emotions, Warfield uh, repeatedly highlights how these emotions originate from Jesus' deepest heart. And so, like Warfield, what can we learn from the Gospels about the emotional life of Jesus? What does a godly emotional life even look like? Well, I think it's a balance between having healthy control of our emotions on one hand and experiencing depth, deep and profound emotions on the other. And so Warfield, he, he studies various emotions about Jesus that we can see in the Gospels. And he particularly, he focused on two of these emotions. And they were compassion and anger. And I think with these, we can really get a deeper understanding of the heart of Christ. And so Warfield, he begins his exploration by discussing compassion. And he says, The emotion which we should naturally expect to find most frequently attributed to that Jesus whose whole life was a mission of mercy and whose ministry was so marked by deeds of beneficence that it was summed up in the memory of his followers as a going through the land and doing good. It is no doubt compassion. In point of fact, this is the emotion which is most frequently attributed to him. And then he goes on to provide some examples of Christ's compassion. And so throughout this essay, Warfield tries to help us see that Jesus didn't just perform compassionate acts, but that he genuinely felt deep empathy and concern for those who were suffering. Like when the blind, the lame, when they afflicted, when they approached Jesus, it says his heart was moved with profound compassion for them. And his compassion was expressed through his actions. But what is highlighted is the deep internal stirring of his emotions in response. So, for instance, when the two blind men asked for sight, or when a leper asked to be cleansed, or when he saw a grieving widow without hearing her plea even, Jesus' heart was deeply moved with compassion. And in each of those cases, Jesus is described as responding from the same inner state, the same place. In fact, there's a Greek, the Greek word that's often translated as to have compassion or pity here is splachnizo. Now, again... Splachnizo. Go ahead and say it. You know you want to. Yeah. Talks about his compassion, but it goes, this goes way beyond just like brief pity. It actually signifies a depth of emotion where your feelings and your desires are churning deep within you. And the noun form of this word actually quite literally refers to one's guts or intestines. So our buddy Warfield gives us some really valuable insight into, again, the implications of this compassion for our understanding of who Jesus was and what his emotional life was like. And throughout this essay, Warfield emphasizes that Jesus 
is the only perfect human to have ever lived. We agree? Therefore, we must consider how to comprehend his emotional life, especially emotions like compassion. And so, Warfield helps us grasp that Christ's emotions surpass our own emotions in depth of feeling because he truly and fully was human. Because he was a perfect human, right? Not a blend. Now, let's make this more personal. How many remember seeing commercials on TV about starving children? Yeah. I've seen those commercials. And I've had moments where, you know, I see that and I would, man, I wish they weren't in that situation. But ultimately, my compassion, lukewarm. And by my lukewarm attitude, we can see the impact of this fallen, sin-filled system that we live in. See, the sin-filled system we all live in, it affects all aspects of our humanity, including our emotions. Why did my heart not overflow with compassion for those suffering children? It's because I'm a sinner. I live in a sinful world. Now, now imagine what it must have been like for a sinless man with perfectly functioning emotions to encounter someone with a leprosy or a blind person or starving children. See, sin, it limits my compassion, but what would an unrestrained compassion look like? That's exactly what Jesus felt. Perfect, unfiltered compassion. I mean, can you imagine the depth of emotion that surged within him? What would perfect compassion actually be like? Well, that human who is now in heaven and has remained fully human, he, he's looking on each of us who are poor, we're naked, we're blind, starving for more. He looks upon us with an unrestrained compassion and a deep affection that is unrestricted by the, the, the self-absorption that hinders my compassion, that hinders your compassion. That is so powerful. And not only is perfect compassion, but let's also think about what perfect anger would look like. Perfectly expressed anger was a central point that was made by Warfield in his essay. And I know a question we might have, how does the emphasis on Christ's heart is gentle and lowly heart, filled with compassion? How does that fit with all these instances of anger that we see in the Gospels? Are we being biased if we just only focus on the gentle, compassionate heart of Jesus? Doesn't he display wrath too? Well, Warfield in his essay, he gets into the anger of Jesus and he points out that 
moral perfection is not only about distinguishing between good and evil, but it's about being genuinely drawn to what is good and completely repelled by what is evil. And he says this, he says, It would be impossible, therefore, for a mortal being to stand in the presence of perceived wrong, indifferent and unmoved. Precisely what we mean by a moral being is a being perceptive of the difference between right and wrong and reacting appropriately to the right and wrong perceived as such. The emotions of indignation and anger belong, therefore, to a very self-expression of a moral being as such and cannot be lacking to him in the presence of wrong. Warfield is explaining that a morally perfect human like Christ would be a contradiction if he didn't experience anger. You know, we may sometimes feel that by emphasizing Christ's compassion that we're going to overlook his anger or vice versa, right? But what we've got to recognize is that these two emotions, they go hand in hand. If Christ lacked compassion, he would never have been angered by the injustices surrounding him. The cruelty, the, the brutality of other humans, even when it came from religious people. In reality, compassion and indignation, they go hand in hand with his soul. It's like a father who deeply loves his children. His precious daughter. And his anger gets flared up most fiercely when she is mistreated. Just think about the anger of Jesus for a moment. I want to take you through a logical argument real quick. Premise number one. Moral goodness reacts with indignant anger in the presence of evil. Premise two. Jesus was the epitome of moral goodness. He was morally Perfect. So our conclusion would be Jesus reacted to evil with deep, outraged anger more profoundly than anyone. You know, Jesus spoke some strong condemnations against those who lead children astray. In fact, he suggested that it would be better for them to be drowned. And again, not because he takes pleasure in tormenting the wicked, but primarily because he loves children that much. It is his heart filled with love rather than some joyful desire for justice that provokes him to make such a severe pronouncement of woe. And let's think about the ongoing and severe judgments that Jesus pronounced against the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23. What drove all of those harsh criticisms? It was from his deep concern for those who were being led astray, who were being mistreated by these highly respected religious leaders. 
You know, the people who followed these teachers, they were burdened down with heavy, unbearable religious demands. These same individuals, they were becoming even more misguided and lost than the scribes and Pharisees themselves. Their intentions for the people were the opposite of Jesus' intentions. The leaders, these religious leaders, they wanted to exploit and elevate themselves while Jesus wanted to serve and uplift people. Jesus desired to protect and care for the people just like a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings for safety. And let's also not forget about the incident where Jesus drives out the money changers from the temple. I mean, that doesn't seem like a very gentle and lowly action, does it? You know, it's even mentioned that Jesus made a whip for the purpose. I mean, just picture him off alone, weaving back and forth, (laughs) calmly constructing the weapon by which he would ferociously drive out these money changers. And he would go in and flip their tables. Why did he have to take such a drastic step? Well, it's because these individuals had corrupted the purpose of the temple. See, the temple was meant to be God's house, a place where sinners could come to offer sacrifices and experience fellowship with God, that they could receive assurance of his favor and his grace. And it was meant to be a sanctuary of prayer, a place for for people to have meaningful interaction between God and himself. And the money changers, they had essentially turned it into a marketplace. They were violating its sacred purpose, and they had transformed it into a profit-making venture. So what we're saying is, yes, Christ did get angry, and he still gets angry because he's the perfect human who loves us too much to stay indifferent. His righteous anger is an expression of his heart, which is filled with tender compassion. And because of his innermost heart, because it is one of tender compassion, he is the first to get angry. And he feels that anger more intensely than any of us. Without any trace of sin infecting that anger. You know, the clearest example, I think, of Christ's Righteous anger is in the Gospels, and it's back at the story with Lazarus and his death in John 11. There's a verb used here, verses 33 and 38, to describe Jesus' emotional state. And that verb actually suggests a profound fury. In fact, Warfield says, Jesus approached Lazarus' grave not in uncontrollable grief, but in an irrepressible state of anger. His overwhelming emotion was pure rage. 
And then he goes on highlighting how it reveals the heart of Christ. He says, inextinguishable fury seizes upon him. It is death that is the object of his wrath. And behind death, him who has the power of death and whom he has come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may have filled his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage. The raising of Lazarus thus becomes not an isolated marvel, but a decisive instance, an open symbol of Jesus' complete conquest of death and hell. What John does for us is to uncover for us the heart of Jesus as he wins for us our salvation. Not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against the foe. Jesus smites on our behalf. He has not only saved us from the evils which oppress us, he has felt for and with, is, and, and with us in our oppression. And under the impulse of these feelings has wrought out our redemption. When Christ displays the fierce, we know he's the lion and the lamb. And Christ displays his fierce strength of a lion towards those who refuse to repent. (coughs) But he reveals the nature of a lamb to those who are humble, hungry, desiring, confessing their sins, putting themselves aside. Jesus holds a righteous hatred for everything that troubles us. You know, remember in Isaiah 53, it says that Christ carried our pain and he bore our sorrows. See, he didn't just endure punishment on our behalf and experience the condemnation we will never face. He also endured suffering alongside us, experiencing the mistreatment that we ourselves go through. When you're in sorrow, he shares in your sorrow. When you're in distress, he is distressed. Our buddy Brett Fisher shared a book with me that he was reading on his sabbatical recently. And the book's titled The Voices of the Heart by Chip Dodd. And in this book, it presents the argument that there is a redemptive side to the eight major emotions of hurt, lonely, sad, anger, fear, shame, guilt, and glad. And that we should not call them evil, but realize the purpose of why God gave us these feelings. I recommend you buy it. But let me ask you, are you feeling angry today? Let's not label it as sinful so fast. After all, the Bible instructs us to be angry when it's appropriate. Maybe you have a valid reason to be angry. Maybe you've actually been wronged and the only relevant response is anger. Here's a comforting thought. Jesus stands by your side in anger. 
He stands with you in your anger. In fact, he's even more angry than you are about this injustice that's being done. But let's keep in mind your righteous anger, my righteous anger, it's just a shadow of his. Because unlike my anger, his anger is completely free of any sin. So when you think about those who have harmed you, those who have wronged you, let's let Jesus be angry on our behalf. Because his anger can always be trusted. Because it always stems from his deep compassion for us. The indignation that he displayed when he encountered the mistreatment of others all throughout the Gospels, that is the same indignation he feels now in heaven when you and I face true mistreatment. So with this understanding, we have to release and we have to forgive those who have sinned against us so that we can find relief again. We've got to let Christ's affection for us not only wash us with his compassion, but we've also got to let it reassure that he stands with us in opposition to everything that troubles us. Amen? Amen. Here's your action plan. Would you take a picture if you want? Some questions I want you to talk about. When you think about Jesus, do you think in terms of beauty? Do you see Jesus as fully human right now? What effect does this have on how we understand Christ's heart? What is the connection between Jesus' compassion and his anger? Are they at odds? Why or why not? What might it mean for Jesus to be angry alongside you? And what does it mean that Jesus is your companion? We've also are going to crack 2 Corinthians. Starting with chapters 1 and 2, please continue doing a here journal, Alexia Divina, memorizing James 1.19. Some of you may wonder, why does he make us ask these questions? Why do I have to do that? Because you need to be able to explain this stuff. Well, Tom said, I don't remember... But Tom said, what do you say? What's your answer? That's why I ask you to do these questions, okay? So let's close our eyes. I just want to ask you, who do you need to release? Who do you need to lean on Jesus and let his anger be perfectly displayed, but you need to release. Who's in your heart? Don't overthink it. It's the first person that popped up. First, I want you to feel the love of Jesus right now. Just feel his compassion, his heart for you. It's so gentle and lowly towards you. It is so perfectly compassionate about what you're going through. 
what this person's done or done hasn't done. He loves you so much. We love you, Jesus. Thank you. Now, I want you to just take whoever you need to release and just hand them over to Jesus. Just say, I release this person. I hand them to you, Jesus. I can do no good apart from you. I can't carry their burdens, but I give you mine. I can't do their part. I can't do your part, God. I can only do my part. So I release them. Because we know who's behind it. It's the enemy of our souls. The accuser, the brethren, the destroyer, Satan, demonic kingdom. So Jesus, we ask you to unleash your fury on the kingdom of darkness. Let the lion roar against every demonic power that's trying to afflict my life. Father, we will bask in the warmth and the kindness of the Lamb. We will come and sit with you, just be with you, God. So, Father, I just pray that you would help us understand more and more your heart, your emotions, the beauty of your heart. We need a deep revelation, God. Help us to see you for who you really are. We love you, God. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.